Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the business news and issues shaping the state. In this episode, we'll take a look at the potential impact on Missouri's cannabis industry if an amendment that would fully legalize marijuana is passed in November. And we'll hear from an entrepreneur who built a sustainable braiding brand. My name is Siggy Reese, and I'm joined by my co-host, Teddy Mallorca. Teddy, how are you doing this week? Siggy, I am doing well. It's really, uh, it's feeling like we're getting into winter here. You know, election season's coming up. We had our first below freezing day this week. So uh, feeling cold, but feeling good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Well, don't get used to the cold because our temperatures are about to go up back to the 80s this weekend. Fall in Missouri. What can you do? Absolutely. Are you ready to get into this week's headlines? Let's do it. Applications opened this week for President Joe Biden's student loan debt relief program. The program will allow tens of millions of eligible people to pay off as much as $20,000 in student debt. The application launch comes as Missouri and six other states are suing Biden over the program for harm they say the program will cause entities that service student loans and treasuries that benefit from taxes on forgiven debt. Missouri removed $500 million from pension funds managed by investment management giant BlackRock earlier this week, setting the firm's emphasis on environmental, social, and governance concerns. Missouri officials are concerned that BlackRock is quote-unquote forcing a left-wing social and political agenda on public companies. Several other Republican-led states have looked to pull similar funds. Meanwhile, environmentalists argue that BlackRock has not done enough to press change at fossil fuel companies. In education news, the State Board of Education approved recommendations Tuesday that aim to increase teacher recruitment and retention. The nine recommendations, which come from the Teacher Recruitment and Retention Blue Ribbon Commission, include increasing the state's starting teacher salary to about $38,000 from the current start of $25,000. And as we move closer to the start of winter, the Missouri Department of Transportation is preparing for a harsh season ahead. The department says it is currently facing a shortage of snowplow operators. Its staffing levels are currently below 30 percent of the required level needed to meet state demand in case of a winter storm. The department's strategy this season is to ensure equal staffing across the state. For our next story, we'll take a look at the possible impact on Missouri's cannabis industry if a proposed amendment that would legalize marijuana is passed by voters in November. I'm joined by Missouri Business Alert reporter Skylar Rossi, who spoke to experts about what would likely happen. Skylar, thanks for being here. Thanks, Siggy. So let's start with some background. What would the amendment change in the state? Sure. So currently, there's about 350 licenses in Missouri for businesses that grow, manufacture, transport, and sell medical cannabis. The amendment, which is Amendment 3 on the November 8th ballot, would legalize cannabis in Missouri for anyone 21 years and older. Businesses that already have a medical marijuana license could apply to convert to a recreational license, and 144 micro-business licenses would be made available for smaller operators looking to enter the market. Okay, so what would this amendment mean for existing businesses? So if the amendment passes, that means that the market will open up and these businesses will likely grow quickly. I spoke with Chase Cookson, who's a professor and researcher at St. Louis University's Cannabis Science and Operations Program. He says that people with existing licenses are almost guaranteed to convert to recreational licenses. Also, a dispensary I spoke to is expecting three times the customers if marijuana is fully legalized. Got it. What would be the economic impact of this? Cookson says the industry could grow to about $900 million annually by 2025. 
Currently, the medical marijuana industry has brought in about $494 million since dispensaries opened in October 2020. So it would open the market quite a bit. There's no way that this isn't going to dramatically increase um, access. We're going to have a lot more folks coming into dispensaries. That makes sense. And what about newcomers? Will they be able to enter the market? So it's looking like the only newcomers would likely be those who apply for the micro-business licenses, which would be distributed to operators who meet at least one of several qualifications. These include owners who have a net value of less than $250,000, owners that plan to operate in an area that's 30% below the poverty line, or people who have nonviolent marijuana convictions. The licenses would be distributed across the state over about two years. Also, these businesses, which include cultivators, manufacturers, and dispensaries, are only able to work with each other. John Payne, who's the campaign manager for Legal Missouri 2022, which is the political action committee behind the amendment, says the purpose is to give these operators a chance in the industry since the market is already established. But Cookson is concerned that it's creating a secondary, closed-off market that will make it difficult to succeed. And I think anybody that looks at this soberly and has you know, just a little bit of business acumen can, can look at this from a distance and pretty quickly see that there are some really significant challenges for, for anyone who gets a micro-business license. Oh, wow. What kinds of challenges? The main one will likely be cost, which was a major barrier when the state was distributing medical marijuana licenses. I spoke to an entrepreneur, Marnie Madison, who says she spent about $70,000 to get a medical marijuana license in Missouri, only to be denied. She ended up moving to Oklahoma to open a dispensary. Madison is the executive director of Exit Now, which is a nonprofit that educates and supports underrepresented founders looking to enter the industry. She says that the industry leaves out people when it costs tens of thousands of dollars to even try for a license. When we talk about how we can operate and be inclusive to everyone is basically by saying that, no, you do not need to be a millionaire to be in this industry. Do you think the qualifications for the micro-business licenses help? So Cookson says it's a good thing that the qualifications are capped, but it's still expensive to start a cannabis business no matter what the size is. And most newcomers are probably still going to have to play catch-up to those already in the industry. Cookson says it's possible that customers would have to prioritize supporting these smaller dispensaries since their products will likely be more expensive than those sold by larger businesses. There, there, there is a, a really good chance we're going to see a bunch of micro-business licenses awarded that will not ever actually get used because the person receiving it will not be able to obtain the capital to get going, or they'll get that capital and get going and realize that they can't compete at the same level of these larger operators. So it's it's the, you know, kind of uh, time-tested story of capitalism where, you know, we've got these larger operators with economies of scale that just can't be replicated at a smaller level. Wow. So I know this has played out in other states. Has any program done this in a way that's uplifted small operators? Not really. There are states that have worked to create equitable programs, but Cookson says they've fallen short. Payne also pointed this out. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens during the election next month. Thanks for chatting, Skyler. And if you want to learn more, check out Skyler's story on MissouriBusinessAlert.com. For our next story, we'll hear from Sierra Amani May. She's a recent University of Missouri grad who's building a business that sells plant-based hair extensions. Interesting. So can you tell me more about the business? Yeah, the startup is called Rebundle. May and her co-founder started the business to offer an alternative to synthetic braids for people who wear hair extensions. They say their product is more environmentally friendly than artificial alternatives. 
Gotcha. And how's the business doing so far? So far, Rebundle has raised nearly $1.5 million in a pre-seed round along with other capital. The startup was also selected for Arch Grants, the competitive accelerator program in St. Louis. That's great. So what are some lessons that May has learned along the way? That's what Missouri Business Alert reporter Camila Fowler aimed to find out. She spoke with May about what it means to have a sustainability focus and some of the challenges she faced while building the business. Here's some of that conversation. I'm here with Sierra Mani May. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. So for those who aren't familiar, what's the elevator pitch for Rebundle? So Rebundle is the first U.S.-made plant-based spraying hair addressing both the itchiness and wastefulness issues commonly found in the hair extensions industry. What have been some of the challenges in building a sustainable brand? So specifically one that uses plant-based products, if you can talk me through that. Definitely having to keep that um, ethos of the brand at the forefront of my mind when making decisions about raw materials or production or vendors, etc. Sustainability can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but what I try to stay focused on is what it means to me and what it should mean to rebundle as a brand and making sure that uh, the people that I bring on to my team understand those concepts as well. And so what does that process look like in providing a sustainable product, especially one that's not necessarily offered on the market before you started offering it? Yeah, there were um, a lot of uh, trials and errors that I had to go through to get the product to a point that was uh, acceptable and replicable. Yeah. So it looks like R&D and it looks like product development. It looks like trying new things and finding people with uh, different expertise than you have to advise you on how you continue to iterate and make changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be costly to, to, to build a product. It usually is pretty costly to build a product. How are you hoping to impact the lives of your customers with your products? And what has that process been like of connecting your product to the people who use them? I love talking to customers. I love talking to braiders and getting feedback on not just the product itself, but you know where they see the market going and, and their unique experiences as consumers. I spend uh, quite a bit of time on a weekly basis, I would say, like talking to customers either responding to questions or DMs or talking to customers on the phone about, you know, just unique experiences. And that's a a key uh, aspect of building a product is making sure that the consumers are involved in that process. What is your experience, especially as a woman of color and just a female entrepreneur in general, been in regards to raising funding for your business? In the beginning, there were a few opportunities that I had to tell this problem to people who uh, wore the product and were familiar with with the problem. So it took a while for me to figure out how to craft the message so that it could be received by anyone. And I think a lot of the feedback in the beginning was somewhat about the validity of the problem, but a lot to do with how the solution would scale and how the market would accept it, et cetera, and how we would overcome some of those barriers to entry. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, who I was speaking to, but not 
in every sense or every case, like every business requires a certain level of convincing that I think may be held in a higher regard for black women or women in general. But when you master it, when you master that, that pitch, that elevator pitch, and you've really been able to lay out how you're going to solve this problem and why you're the best person to solve that problem, you may think about it a little bit less because you've like figured out how to navigate um, around some of those unconscious biases. What is the biggest lesson you've learned as an entrepreneur? People matter. Treating people good goes a long way. And it can be difficult to figure out like how to meet people's needs and meet the business needs. Um, but you need you need good people. So sometimes it's not a good fit and that just is what it is. But treating people with as much respect and integrity as possible um, just alleviates a lot of stress. Sierra Imani Mae, thank you so much for joining me today. That sure. was lovely. It is now time for us to get into our words of the week. Teddy, what word do you have for us this week? My word this week is summer food benefits. Okay, and what's going on there? Well, an emergency pandemic program that aimed to get emergency grocery benefits to families with children who didn't have access to school lunches over the summer was never approved in Missouri. So now, in October, families have still not received those benefits. Wow, that's awful. And why did that happen? Well, Missouri is one of seven states not officially authorized to administer these emergency benefits. State officials are blaming the delay on a missing piece of its proposal to the federal government. There has also been some confusion due to last year's benefits having an online application and this year's benefits being automatic. Okay, um, what about other states? Have they been able to disperse the benefits? Some states, like Tennessee and Arkansas, began distribution of the benefits in September. But Nebraska will not begin its distribution until December. That's all I've got this week. What's your word, Siggy? This week, I have chosen hesitant. Okay, and who's feeling hesitant? Well, that would be holiday shoppers. Or at least that's how retailers are expecting holiday shoppers to feel. Gotcha. And, And what's making retailers feel that way? Well, with rising inflation, retailers are predicting that consumers may be hesitant to spend a typical amount on gifts this year. That makes sense. So what are these retailers doing in response? So some retailers are ordering inventory earlier to avoid supply chain issues. Others are increasing promotion and offering more discounts in hopes of enticing shoppers. Well, it'll be interesting to see what shoppers do this holiday season. Definitely. But for now, it's time for our closing thought. For a closing thought, here's Rebundle founder Sierra Amani May again with her advice for women entrepreneurs. Maybe my advice would be to to start and not wait for others to hold you up or to get distracted or deterred by all the roadblocks because there there are so many and you just have to believe in yourself enough to start where you are and like go for it. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you to the M33 Project for providing music for this episode. For my co-hosts, Teddy Mallorca, editors Cole Miller, Katie Quinn, Skylar Rossi, and Michael Stacy, I'm Siggy Reese, and this has been Business Brief. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.